0: Welcome to my podcast, Self-Management for Musicians. I'm your host, Mike Del Ferro, and today I'm talking to Philippe Lem. Philipp is a wonderful drummer from the Netherlands. We know each other from the Netherlands and we both speak Dutch, but of course, this podcast will be in English. He has been living in New York for many, many years. He's playing there with a lot of wonderful people, and he also has a course how to book a tour, and that's one of the reasons I would like to talk to him and share our knowledge in yeah, booking yourself as a musician, et cetera, et cetera. Filip, welcome and thank you for joining.
1: Welcome. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: How about your musical background before we dive into the, the, the music business part? I started playing drums when I was 16. I
1: fell in love with the instrument instantly. I applied to go to the conservatory in Amsterdam and started in the preliminary year when I was 19, 19 or 20, and graduated from the conservatory in 2009. Then uh, I worked for a few years in the Netherlands and uh, a little bit around. And then in 2011, I got an opportunity to move to New York to do my master's at the Manhattan School of Music, studying with John Riley. Um I graduated in 2013 and decided to stay in New York. So I've been here for about 12 years now. I have a trio under my name, Philippe Lem Trio. Uh, I play a lot of different styles. Um, most of the work I do, of course, is as a sideman. So I play drums for other people. Uh, I teach drums at Columbia University. And I... Give workshops and seminars about how to book a tour, which comes from my experience of booking tours for my own trio. But I think it's also uh, applicable for anyone that's a performer, could be or a comedian, stand-up comedian, or you do any kind of performance arts and you want to play at other locations, I guess, than your hometown. And then we call it a tour. <laughs> it's more than two dates. It's a tour. So yeah. I think there is a. Um, there is um there's a lot of mystery on how to do it and um uh, during the pandemic when all my gigs were wiped away instantly i uh, i saw an opportunity to make this course and to talk about my experience as a band leader and and how to basically organize yourself with you know particularly about booking
0: concerts and eventually booking tours because a lot of musicians resist this whole thing or are kind of scared. What's your take on this? I
1: like the comparison with like if you record a record for the first time you record an album um, the first time you do it you it's not just going into the studio, right? It's a lot of different steps. It's writing the music, rehearsing the band recording it, editing, mixing, mastering packaging, artwork distributing, releasing, and I think because there's so many steps, sort of branches connected to the uh, to just the initial project of recording an album, that unless you have a bit of a bird's eye perspective, you can see all the steps, it can be overwhelming. It's a lot of moving parts, and if you haven't done it before, if it's more than three things, it feels overwhelming. So I think musicians are scared of booking tours because they have a smaller amount of control over it as they want. Like when you record an album, it's completely in your hands. You book the studio, you can mix it or you find somebody that can mix it. But when you're booking, there are so many external parties involved, right? The the musicians that you want to ask if they want to join you on tour, the venues, the the locations. So I think it's overwhelming... To start with the process, but at least what I was trying to do with this course is to break it down into a step-by-step thing, so it becomes a little less overwhelming and a little bit more bite-sized chunks, if you will. And um, yeah, the, and my experience is that once people start doing it and they see some results, it becomes actually really fun, and they feel
0: encouraged to keep going with it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah, that's also my experience, and. What I always say to musicians, if they if they're scared or, or insecure or whatever, it's overwhelming, like you said. You know, I always say, look, compared to mastering your instrument or your voice or whatever you do musically, which is hard work. You know, I mean, because let's emphasize this: you and I are both serious musicians. You know, play at a certain level, we play with great people, so to speak, and uh, but we also know how to book things. But you know, we're we're not like. Um, businessmen who play music were musicians who know a little bit about the music business and you know, that's a big difference but if I, if I tell musicians well compared to mastering your your music this is actually penis because once you know how to do it it's actually not so difficult
1: yeah I totally agree um, it is not that difficult but it is also very easy to neglect it it seems to be a sort of a constant and um, to make it successful, I think you need to invest a little bit of time on a regular basis, um, and I think it's easier to spend that time or to understand why you do it if you can make it very concrete. Because um, it's maybe it's similar to practicing your instrument. Like practicing in itself is such a wide, you know, concept. Like you can practice anything. Like you can work on repertoire or your timing or your phrasing or on your sound. But unless you have a specific thing you want to work on. Only then you will start seeing kind of results and it's it's measurable. So it's the same with this. It's not that you just spend time on trying to book gigs or shows or, or a tour, but that you set a very specific goal um, with a specific timeline. Like I want to book a tour in one year from now. And I want that tour to be a week long. Then it becomes a concrete project and it's a lot easier than to focus your energy on it and it doesn't feel like if you don't hear back from a venue that you reached out to that was a lost uh, 20 minutes because you know why you're doing it right if you're practicing time on your instrument or you practice learning a new song and you don't get it instantly that's okay because you know that you got a little bit better at it at least if you played twice or three times through the song and i think that's the same with with this with booking You
0: need to have a a specific goal that uh, that you're trying to achieve. When did you actually book your first tour? How long did it take you?
1: Wow. So, when I started doing, let's say, booking, I didn't even think about it like that. I didn't think, like, I'm going to book a tour. It was really the, the first time that I did it was I had this idea like how nice would it be to play on the street in Paris and um, that was just an idea I think I was under the shower and I was like you know what this summer we should I should play on the street in Paris and I didn't even have a band at that time so it really came from just an idea and I asked some people at the conservatory it's like hey do you want to come to Paris for a week and we'll play on the street that was it there was no repertoire yet there was no band whatsoever but they were all interested in it because we're all in the first year and, you know, who who's going to say no to playing on the street in Paris? How fun is that? <laughs> yeah. I found out that you could apply for these licenses to play um, in kiosks, which are these small outside stages in parks in Paris um, for free. So then I thought, oh, if I have seven of those kiosks, and just need to rent a little apartment for us to stay and we're good to go. There was no... We didn't speak about money. It was very me like a just gypsy style of going on tour like it was not even considered a tour it was just play music on the street and after that tour i i learned a few things i learned okay we need a cd because we can't pay all our costs with coins <laughs> people donate some coins it doesn't help and um, uh, we need to do this i had like seven different locations and i i remember that the best location that we had was the the stage behind the Notre Dame in Paris. So the next year I did the same thing, but I applied only for that stage, because some of these stages were like little parks and there was almost no foot traffic. So then we had seven times the next year, seven times the stage behind the Notre Dame, and we had a, a little CD, which at that time was just like, hey, can you guys send me two songs that you all that that are your compositions or that you recorded, we'll just make something out of it, so we can sell something to fund this whole thing. And from there on, I think it sort of developed. Every time I did something, I learned something. And that resulted in doing this thing with a quintet I had in the Netherlands. Uh, Philippe Lem group, which was uh, Aaron Harevan on guitar and Martin Hiltowski on the bass. Marta Hooghuis on saxophone and Dragan Chalina. Great band. Very great band. And we did this for a couple of years. We had a lot of fun. And uh, we played a lot on that stage in Paris. uh, Yeah, I think that's where it started. And the trio started when I was in New York in 2012, my second year. And I think that really... We did a competition in Belgium, uh, the Huilard Jazz Competition. It's called the B-Jazz Competition now. And we won that contest. And we got some shows and some money and we could record a record. And then it really became okay, I can imp- apply what I know from playing on the streets in Paris and sort of the logistics that are connected to that. I can apply that to here. Let me just reach out to, to clubs. And uh, I just sent out a whole bunch of emails and didn't hear back <laughs> from most yeah, places. Of but course. applied. And, you know, it was bit by bit, venues um, signed on to this tour and... Um, I think we played a really great show. So I think they were interested in in having us back. And Now I'm trying to sort of build on those contacts
0: ever since, actually. And then the pandemic hit and then you decided to create an online course, how to book a tour.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was, I mean, within a span of a week, I'd say, like every gig that I had booked for that year, uh, everything was canceled, like the, It came to a complete stop. Yeah. And um, because I'm not a US citizen, um, I couldn't apply for unemployment. So if you live in the US and you're a US citizen, at that time, you could apply for unemployment. But because I couldn't, I was literally looking for whatever work I could do. But there is a bit of a tricky part because I couldn't, I can't just work. I can't just start working in a coffee shop here because my visa is strictly connected to musical activities and yeah, I thought, what can I, what can I do? What other skills do I have? Mm. And then, yeah, purely to stay busy, basically, to kind of have something to do, I thought like, well, I have some experience in booking gigs. So let me see if I can form this into some sort of package, like an information package. And when I started with that, yeah, it became it became a lot more involved. It's like, okay, we need worksheets. We need to have a strict program. You need homework. Um, this is what you do now. Now you have to stop the video and make this list. And it became a a much further developed project than I initially had in mind. Yeah, and it became like a, a series of twenty videos, um, in which I basically explain my process. Like this is what I do. And the course has two parts. And in the second part, I also thought it was interesting to interview people that are on the other side of booking, which are the festival programmers, the club bookers, tour managers, everyone that is involved in this process other than the musicians. So what are the people that are reading your email, what are they looking for? Because they get a lot of emails. So what is it that is interesting to them? When are they booking the band? When do they like to work with a band again? um, When is it ready to work with a tour manager or with an agent? So I interviewed a lot of these people. Paul Pace from Ronnie Scott's in London. Frank Boulder from North Sea Jazz. And uh, the tour manager of Robert Glasper. And there was a whole collection of people that sort of gave their take on how it is for them to work with artists and what they are looking for. Uh, when they're booking a band. So you kind of get to see both sides. Um,
0: and they were all, yeah, of course, stuck at home, all these people, because you did all, all of this during the lockdown, right?
1: Yeah, I did it all on the, during the lockdown. So I had to script everything. First, I had to map out my process because, you know, when you do something for a long time, it, it makes complete sense to you, <laughs> Yeah. but then when you have to explain it to somebody else, you're like, oh, uh, maybe I should talk about this first
0: in how many weeks did you record these 20 videos because it's very comprehensive
1: um i think the whole thing took me about 2 or 3 months and the um, <laughs> so i first had to script it right i had to have like a decent script of the stuff that i wanted to talk about i wanted to be concise and to the point and i don't wanted to have a lot of like well um i guess you could do um... no i was like this is what you have to do And this is how I want to, the narrative to be. So I had to write a script for each section for each video, and then I recorded it, and um, I recorded it from my apartment. So I had like, if there was a dog barking, I had to do the take again, (laughs) and then I had to edit it. So that was the editing took took time as well because, yeah, and then the animations and to make the worksheets. Uh, Yeah, I would say three months it took me. It was a lot of fun though. I think about 500 people bought the course from the website. And then there are a couple of schools that I was working with. There was a school, a school in Germany. I forget the name. It's a conservatory, mainly classical. And I worked with them for a few semesters in a class form. So there were, I think, 15 students per class. And I would guide them through their projects. Um, And then one-offs, I mean... In New York, I work with some schools, NYU and the Manhattan School of Music. Uh, and there are even some booking agents. <laughs> There's a booking agent that bought the course for all their sort of satellite employees. Like, we want you guys to do this. <laughs> so I thought it was kind of funny that the people that are doing this professionally bought this course to uh, use it as a
0: device to teach their staff what to do. <laughs> Fantastic. But 500 500- 500 people who bought the course that's a lot of people
1: yeah there was there is i work with an agent in uh, in italy that they organized some some sort of group zoom sort of conferences where i talked about this course and about um why i think it's important to start doing this what the benefits are from from booking your own tours and uh, and through that a bunch of people bought it yeah, I mean, I don't know if five hundred people is is that much, given the amount of people that are probably interested in the topic.
0: Oh, well, yeah, that's true. I mean, that's what I noticed from my podcast. I mean, it, yeah. it's growing really fast because musicians share it and all of that. But to get five hundred paying people for a course, that's yeah. another story. In my, I experience, mean, it's not
1: expensive. I think it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's way cheaper than taking a one-hour lesson with someone. So I, I, I think I should charge a lot more.
0: Yeah. I should no. charge
1: a lot more but I think you know it's uh it's some it's a, uh, I think it's affordable. It's not that expensive for people to to partake.
0: No, and and how did you advertise it?
1: Um I did like a whole thing on Facebook, like Facebook advertisement. I haven't been doing a lot about it lately to be honest. Uh Facebook ads, social media
0: and then um yeah, people seem to be able to find it. One of the reasons I started this whole um, music business and also this podcast thing is that there are a couple of great podcasts with, about music business, especially a couple of American ones and the, the content is great, but these are like one and a half, two hour interviews sometimes, people talking and then, I mean, we're we're both speaking English. You're in New York, but that really American way of talking is so incredibly fast and a little bit invasive, even aggressive in my uh, in my uh, experience. You know what I mean, right? And, uh, and 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 this episode, because we've been talking like for twenty minutes already, is relatively long because I only do very short episodes to keep things okay. to the point. So musicians can like, okay, I want to I want to know how to send an email or uh, how to. Uh, how you know how to create a funct- very functional database or yep. why why a website is important which brings me to a point because when i started preparing this podcast i went to your website and your website is great and i'm trying to get across to musicians how important a website is
1: yeah well um if we if we're tying it into booking i think there are a few things that are sort of priority list, right? One I think is booking far in advance. I think a year in advance is definitely a good rule of thumb to keep in mind. If you want to book a tour for a week, let's say, and I'm not just talking about like five local bars, but you want to go to five different cities. I think starting a year in advance is a really good uh, rule of thumb. Because it will just take more time than you think. Um, That's one. And the second one, yeah, you're right. The database is very important. Um, Start with your personal contacts and try to sort of spread out from there. Um, So if I know a club in the Netherlands in Utrecht, I'm going to see what are the cities around there. Well, the Netherlands is quite small, but if you would do it in another country, the distances might be a bit bigger. You don't want to end up driving for four hours every day. So you're going to sort of exactly, no. you know, like fan out like that. I start here, then I would like to go there. You plan a year in advance. And what I like to do is I make a sort of an ideal scenario. If everything would work out exactly as I want, if all the bookers that I email say immediately, yes, how much money do you want? We'd love to have you. Um, I'll, make a, I'll make a sort of an ideal routing. I say, okay, I would love to play at this venue on that day. That's the goal. And the next day, it would be perfect if I could play at this venue because it's only an hour away. And the next day, I would like to do a gig there. And you know what? I think I can do a workshop at the local conservatory before that. So then I have this image and it's literally above my desk, the dates and the days of the week next to it. And now I know what I'm going for. It will definitely change. But in an ideal way, I I sort of envision how I want it to be. And... Um, And then of course, what you're saying, yes, all the, the, the website, the videos, I think are very important, Yeah, particularly videos in front of a live audience, that's what I heard from many different bookers. It's way better if there is live audience and bookers can see how the audience responds,
0: uh, to the music, um, photos, videos, of course, the whole, the whole press kit. Um, and don't you, but don't you think that sometimes, because look, promoters, they don't have a lot of time. You know, mm. and they they receive zillion email, emails every day. When you have like a live gig, which takes like two hours, would you send them the whole video?
1: I sent them short clips. I mean, if you can make like a three minute sort of impression video of yeah. like different gigs, some highlights, that could work. Some bookers prefer to see a full song just to see. I think it's about risk management right? Like they don't want to end up with a band that can't bring an audience or doesn't sound good. Um, and you know how it is. If you hear a piano player play, or I mean, you kind of know within 30 seconds, if they are, if they're good or not.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. I think book have a similar fastness in, in having a quick judgment. This is what we're looking for. I've heard a hundred bands. These guys can play or they have something special. Uh, or there's something else like you have a huge social media following. But um yeah, I think they are able to kind of scan through these things quickly. You're right, don't don't send them a two hour live concert, but you know, a couple minutes of a few songs and maybe a
0: a link to um to to a full song. They know why you contact them. You're not gonna ask them how's your mother doing? So the YouTube link should already be visible in the email. Immediate right. access to your music is your biggest chance. So, you know, you know bear in mind... And I would mind add to the, that
1: that, um, that the, another thing that is... Again, I think it's about risk management. They don't yeah. want to take the risk that something goes wrong. And I do think that a reference saying, hey, my name is Philip Lem, I'm a New York-based drummer and I got your contact from Mike Del Ferro. And if you have played there before or I know that that's a connection... And you'd be surprised about this—that the band doesn't show up, or that they are untrustworthy, or there's something else. If there is a connection with somebody that they know, it reduces the risk that there, that uh, something goes wrong. Um, oh, Mike Ferro, I know him. Yeah, he's great. That show was fantastic. Well, if I get if he recommends somebody, yeah, that's good. You know, so um, I would definitely put that in
0: there. To expand your network and to get on the radar screen of people who don't know you, recommendation versus introduction is incredibly powerful. You send out an email and, and you don't get a reply. What do you do? Yeah.
1: Well, there is a whole section in the course literally about this, about all the steps to take. Because, and the bottom line is that there is always an action. So there are basically... I would say four main responses, right? The first one is that you don't get a response, like radio silence. So I would say you have to follow up with that certain amount of times. There are ways to automate that so the email gets followed up automatically. And then there, that's when you don't get a response. And then the other three responses are, uh, we're not interested in your music. I have a response for that too. The second one be, we're full for the season there's a response for that too. Or um, I'm very busy right now, like email me back later. Just some sort of postponement of any kind of arrangement. And then of course the one, we love your music, please come play. But I guess that's kind of self-explanatory where to take it from. But for all the other responses, um, for all the other replies that you're getting from a booker, I think there is a response. Um, And um, it's a bit, tricky to basically explain all of those. And the reason why I do that in like this quick in a podcast, um, but it comes down to being organized with this and not forgetting about it. If you get a, if you don't get a, a response or you get a response that is dismissive, um, there is a follow um, to still, um, engage in that connection. I can give you one example. So let's say that they said we're full for the season. I would immediately respond, like, when do you start the book for your next season? And if they say, email us back next year, I'm actually putting a reminder in my phone. And I think it's sort of building these small habits that, um, because I get random reminders on my phone, like, email this festival, and I'm like, that festival. And then I go to my email inbox and type that name, and then the conversation thread pops up, and I can see, oh, yeah. I remember, they asked me to email them in a year. (laughs) I'm going to email them. And what that does, I think, is it builds some sort of goodwill with that booker because they can see the threat in that email too. And they're like, oh, they actually emailed me back.
0: How do you balance out your artistic process and TCB, taking care of business? How do you balance this out? That's a question I get a lot. Right. Um, I think
1: it goes in, in waves. Um, sometimes I would spend a lot of time on booking and sometimes I don't spend any time because I'm on the road myself or, but I generally try to do a little bit every day or, you know, every week a bit, uh, and usually I'll do that in the morning, I have sort of a routine, for instance, now I want to record a new album because I also need a new album to book more shows and to book the next tour, hopefully for 2025. Um, so, again, it's above my desk, record an album and all the sort of sub-categories that are under it, like rehearse the band, pick the material, also write material. Um, I think I function best if I have a clear overview of what not only just needs to be done, but what I would like to do. Um, and then from that, it's it's sometimes just like crossing out, crossing them out. Okay, I need to decide what material we're going to record. Those ten songs. Okay, I'm going to put all these songs in the gigs that are coming up now, so we can practice them. I need to book a studio. It's some some of these things are just you need to like knock them out of the park one by one. Right. <laughs> and um. And then. Uh, You know, maybe in the afternoon I have time to to practice my instrument or to do some other things. Hopefully at night I play somewhere. Yeah. But I think as freelancers, we do have the luxury to decide our own schedule. So, um, yeah, I think every day a little bit.
0: (laughs) I always uh, um, uh, advise musicians to, you know, because me personally, I, I... if I'm not playing, I I like to play at home at night. You know, I'm not so strong in the morning, in the afternoon, there's always, always a lot going on. And I always advise musicians to keep the moments where you're musically most inspired to create, to play whatever you do, to record, to save those valium, valuable moments for the music and don't sacrifice them for the music business part. Otherwise, you end up frustrated with that with that feeling like, I should have practiced, or I should have done this or that, and then... You know that's that's a terrible feeling to deal with.
1: Yeah, it's hard. It's like it's not like uh, it's not uh, not every day is the same, right? And even though, oh. if you know that about yourself, like I am most inspired during the evening, uh, that's a great thing. It's not always that clear for me. Sometimes there are moments where it's just the moment I wake up, I could sit behind the instrument and everything just flows out and I'm inspired. And then sometimes there are days where I would sit behind the instrument and yeah, it's like. I, I practice, but I don't know if I'm that inspired or if I'm just moving my hands, you know?
0: And then you say, I oh, forget it, let's book a gig.
1: <laughs> yeah, but that also there's doesn't always work. This whole process of booking shows is also the stuff that happens after you actually booked the gig. Because when we say, okay, the e- the, you get an email back from a venue that says like, great, we'd love to have you. Uh, there's a whole nother uh, door that opens regarding negotiating the fee and like dealing with the logistics how you want to get there where you're staying depending on the kind of music you play what backline the club provides if you want to do workshops if you apply for grants there's so many satellite topics that um, if you book the gig that's almost where it starts (laughs) yeah it's not the end goal no and even when you're done finishing finished playing the gig I think you're not really done there's still sort of a tail end if we're talking about it, yeah. But again, once you're aware of that, it becomes a lot easier to deal with because, um, you know why you do something, right? You yep. know what it contributes to, what it amounts to in the longer time, in the longer run.
0: Yeah, yeah. The North Sea Jazz Festival is a tough one to get in, huh?
1: Yeah, it's difficult. We played there once, um, and that was in 2018, I think. So, yeah, I mean yeah. we we're going. 24. That's six years later. I think, and the band sounds fantastic. So it's yeah. I think it would be a really good addition.
0: Yeah. And do they yeah. treat you as Philip Lem, the drummer from the Netherlands, like a local, or do they treat you like Philip Lem was in New York playing with fantastic American <laughs> musicians? So we so we can ask a little bit more money.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um. I think I definitely. I'm not getting paid as the Americans. Unfortunately, it's tricky. It's because I do in the Netherlands we do play at like I would say the premier jazz venues right we play at Bim Bimhuis or yeah. we play at concertgebouw um Paradox Tifoli, Fokker Fabriek I mean I think we're playing at all the big venues but I'm pretty sure I mean and they're paying alright but if this is an American band it's a different it's a different fee I'm 100% sure and it's unfortunately something I can't really um, I only can get that leverage. If I can sell 500 tickets per show, then I can say, okay, we need a lot more money. Yeah. But it's the, it helps like that. For instance, we played Ronnie Scott's in February. We played there three times before as an opening act, and now we played our first show as a headliner and we sold out the venue. So now I have more leverage, right? So now I can ask for,
0: for more money. I want to thank you for, for all these insights. Good luck with all your tours and uh, we stay in touch.
1: Sounds good. Thanks, Mike.
0: If you enjoy my podcast, then please subscribe, give it a rating and share it with other musicians. I also host another podcast, the Mike Del podcast with travel stories, interviews with wonderful people and more. You will find it on Spotify and all other podcast platforms or via my website, MikeDelFero.com.